I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. As I shared in early June, we are in the sweet and tender wrap-up phase of this podcast, which will be ending on July 21st. Yep, this is the second to last episode. That feels very wild to say, but I am so glad to be joined today for the third time, I think, by my friend and one of my very favorite writers, Carrot Quinn. One of the themes in my book is definitely forgiveness and how, especially when you've experienced abuse, how hard it is to forgive the people who've hurt you. And for years, my inability to sort of forgive my mom caused me like a lot of suffering. And when I finally came around, I mean, obviously it took a long time and we should never, you know, forgive people before we're ready or, you know, whatever. Because not forgiving someone can be very energizing and can help us escape situations and can help us, you know, make different choices and get safe or whatever we need to do. But when I finally forgave her, it also allowed me to forgive myself. Carrot is the author of two books, Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart, which is the book that first got me into long-distance hiking back in 2016. My life would not be the same without Carrot and this book. And she's also the author of a new book called The Sunset Route, a memoir of a childhood marked by neglect, poverty, and periods of homelessness in Alaska, which she leaves behind to travel the country via freight train and more. It's a story about forgiveness and self-discovery and the redemptive power of nature, and it was just published yesterday. And oh my God, I freaking loved this book, as well as this conversation with Carrot that goes deeper into the behind the scenes of it all. That will start for you in just a moment, but first I want to once again thank our truly wonderful Patreon community, the 400 plus people who have made this listener-funded show possible for the past six years. Wow. I was super unsure back in 2015 of whether or not a listener-funded show was even possible, especially one that could eventually pay everyone involved, right? The guests, the sound engineer, the host, the transcriptionist. I didn't know. I didn't know if that was possible. And so creating this podcast in this way with that sort of funding model felt like such a wild leap into the unknown. And the people in my Patreon community who took that leap with me and said, hell yes, let's do things a different way, those are folks for whom I will always be supremely grateful. And even though this particular podcast is ending, our Patreon community is not. So those folks and I are currently in the process, it is a fun process, of co-creating what the next phase of this work together is going to look like. It would be a delight to have you join us if you feel drawn to a space that prioritizes honesty and intimacy and possibility with different offerings each month, including essays and live gatherings and audio content and more. We operate on a sliding scale, with all tiers getting access to absolutely everything, and you can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Okay, let's get into today's episode. All right, we are good to go. Carrot, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Nicole. It's great to be talking to you once again. I was doing the uh, light math this morning. This is your third time on the main podcast. Plus we've done in the past, like I think one bonus episode, maybe more for my Patreon. And then I interviewed you in person at one of the retreats. So apparently my favorite hobby is interviewing Garrett Quinn. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, you're my favorite <laughs> podcast I've ever been on. So the feeling is mutual. <laughs> So we'll just keep, you just keep writing new books yeah. and then we'll just keep having reasons for me to interview you we can, again. We can keep, yeah, hanging out and talking. Is, is that a career? <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. That's, if that's like, 
you know, that is a life well lived, you know, if I can just keep creating, writing and being on your podcast and, you know, I'm happy. <laughs> your new book, The Sunset Route, was my most anticipated read of 2021 and it did not disappoint. Oh, Seriously, congratulations. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. That means a lot. Mm, I loved it so. I mean, I loved your first book so much. I loved this book so much. To get us started, I guess, can you share what the book's about for folks? Yeah, it's this, I don't know. It, it's hard to describe, I guess, what a book is about. It's kind of about my relationship with my mother, but it's also an adventure story. So it's like, I, I try to write things where you can put yourself in the main character's shoes and kind of go on an adventure with that person. So you're sort of in this book, you're sort of like on this adventure riding freight trains in the US. And then there are also a lot of chapters about my childhood in Alaska. And you sort of learn about my relationship with my mother. And then the book, the freight train parts, I'm sort of, I'm having these adventures and it's exciting and lonely and all these different things. And I'm cold and hungry and whatever. And I'm also sort of thinking about that relationship and sort of pondering these big questions. And then um, in the end, it kind of comes together and there's some nice catharsis (laughs) <laughs> at the end yeah you you write catharsis very well oh, that's what like, I, I definitely felt satisfied at the end of the book I was like okay yeah I feel like we've been through something together I feel like in life in real life we get very little we we rarely get the kind of catharsis or closure that we need or want that we want we just we don't like we have to give it to ourselves and so I think in writing I try to give it to myself and give it to the reader. If like the reader can relate, you know, to the, to the story or to the emotional story, I try to give people that because it's hard to come by, you know? (laughs) I feel like so much of my own desire to write is like making meaning for myself of my own life. Even if it's arbitrary and I've made it up, like I, when I complete the piece of writing where I'm like, ah, and it all comes together, even if it's just for me, it feels better. Oh my God. That, yeah. You just summed it up. It's like writing is literally making meaning because I feel like so much, all of it is out of our control and feels like chaos and it's like suffering. And it's like, why, why so much suffering, you know? And then being able to make meaning helps us or helps me like make peace with the amount of suffering that we experience and will continue to experience until we die. (laughs) Um, So it's like, yeah, so writing definitely, and maybe other kinds of art too. It's like, you're, you're making meaning and it helps, it makes, it gives us like these moments of grace and helps us tolerate the chaos. (laughs) I think of it as like digestion, but for life experiences or pain that we've been through that otherwise it just sort of like sits there, right? Like heavy in the gut and being able to make some kind of art out of it. Yes. It helps. Yeah. Even though the art we make is always more ordered than the event actually ever was being able to make something beautiful and ordered helps us think of it differently and makes it, yeah, less scary. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not, I mean, it's true in that it's like, yeah, these events happened, but it's not true in the sense that it was as ordered when it happened. You know, it's like, we, we are like just 
making patterns and making order. <laughs> I mean, I have to remind myself of that a lot when I get jealous of either other people's work or what I perceive in their stories, or I, I get it a lot when I'm reading memoir, obviously, because I write kind of personal stories as well. And I can have these moments of, wow, that person's life like makes so much sense, or it was like so wild or so adventurous or so this, or they're so self-aware. And then to remember that's true. And also what you said is true, that we make it way more orderly and we cut out so much of the boring and so much of the chaos in the retelling. Yeah. Like we get this raw data, just the raw data of reality. I mean, essentially this is what our brains do, right? Is we get all this input and then we order it into our conception of reality and sort of make sense out of it. But then on another level with making art, we take that, which is still just like this raw data and we sort of weave it and we, we do, we do like pattern recognition and we find rhythms and we find like, you know, it's kind of like music. We find like this like nice melody and then we find this nice rhythm anyway. And we like weave it into this beautiful tapestry. And I, I'm like, why do we do that? I don't know, but it feels good. It does feel good. <laughs> well, we are, we are going to today talk about the beautiful tapestry that is this book. So very excited to dig in. I'm going to ask you to read a passage from it. It's one of my favorite pages, just in the amount that is conveyed in this like one page of the book. For context for folks listening, it's a point of the story where you and eight other people are living in a two-bedroom house, which we will come back to. <laughs> I have some <laughs> questions about that. Being creative and how you're making that work, you know, sourcing food from dumpsters, grappling with not wanting to trade hours for dollars, like in that normalized, never-ending, year-round, exploitative, capitalist way. Will you read that page for yeah. us? Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm 20 years old living in essentially my first punk house. Exchanging labor for capital is not something that we, the residents of the Witch Elm, have much interest in. We jealously guard our label, labor, choosing to squander it on our own projects. Scenes on DIY abortions, elaborate shadow puppet plays on the history of the North American Free Trade Agre Agreement, bicycles built from salvaged parts, gathering tea from the tea dumpster that smells of bergamot and rose, and hummus busy with fermentation from the hummus dumpster, wild travel south on freight trains to escape the winter rains. Because of this, of course, we have little money. When we need money, we work in manic spurts, going to North Dakota for the sugar beet harvest or to Southern Oregon in the fall to trim weed. You can offer up your body for drug trials or pickled clothing by the pound from the Goodwill outlet, model it yourself and resell it on eBay. You can hawk your dirty underwear online. Let a strange man watch you get a pedicure or wrestle with your friends in a baby pool of jello while this strange man jerks off. When you have a couple thousand dollars, you quit because you can. You are young, healthy, and you need very little. You can subsist on day-old bread from the trash and boiled pinto beans. Life is breathtakingly short, and Western civilization is definitely going to collapse in the next five to eight years. Paid work is a sort of death. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> How that is much a of good that part. Still it's so good. Care. I mean, this whole book's so good. How much of that still speaks to how you feel right now? like how I feel about, uh, quote unquote work now mm -hmm. at the, the age of 38, you know, I, during this time that I just read, I, so I, so I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was nine years old. It's weird. I like, my life has been, I'm very mercurial in how I, how do I put this? I have a hard time feeling safe. <laughs> And so I will get involved in things like jobs, houses, relationships, whatever. And then at some point, something will happen that feels like disappointing or scary or hard. And I'll just be like, 
freaked out, like on a cellular level and just bail. And so it's really hard to have, for me to have followed. And because of that, I've like lived seasonally for like 18 years. Like I live in one place in the winter and another place in the summer. And I've done that for like 18 years and, you know, various other things I do that like reflect that, like just cellular difficulty feeling safe. (laughs) And because of that, it's really hard to have follow through with, for example, creative projects or career paths or things I'm interested in, or like, I never went to college or I started going for like half a year when I was like 28 and then I quit. And like, but weirdly, this is the weird thing. When I was nine, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And that has been the one thing that I have felt consistent about my entire life. And that has never failed. Like, so the passage I just read when I was 21, I was still in that space where I was like, I want to be a writer. I want to be a writer. And to do that, I mean, yeah, you know this, everybody who's like trying to do this knows this. In order to make a living as a writer, you kind of need a lot of time that you're not working another job because you need that time and energy in order to invest in your writing in order to get better at writing because it takes, you know, like hundreds of thousands of hours of just writing to get better at writing, to figure out how, like, you know, you have to figure out how to write how you want to write. Like it takes like thousands of hours, you know? And so you can't be working full time year round. I mean, I'm sure some people have pulled it off, but you can't be working full time year round for most of us. If you're going to invest the time and energy into writing that it takes to eventually build up to being able to make a living off your writing. So that was part of how I was feeling in that passage where I was, I've always been like, I don't want to work full time because I want to, I, I need to focus on my writing. So I continued to do that like all through my twenties where I, I would often get a summer job in Alaska and save my money and then go back to Portland. And back then Portland was very cheap. You know, I would, I would live in like, like I literally lived in a shack in my friend's backyard one year and there were like spiders crawling on me at night. I mean, they were like friendly spiders, but I would like hear them fall from the ceiling and like hit my bed frame at night and, or I would live in like a moldy trailer or, or like someone's gross basement room and live off the money I'd saved and just write like all winter long. And eventually, because I was, because yeah, I needed very little, like, like I was fortunate in that aspect where I was like the, my shitty diet and very, and not having a car and like not having health insurance and not having any money for really anything ever. I was still like, okay enough when I was young, obviously I need now that I'm older and I'm not so young, I like need more to feel good, you know, mm-hmm. like I need like better food <laughs> and various things. But, uh, I was able to like make it work on that little money and just write. And then eventually I was able to like produce a book and like make money off the book and slowly build these other income streams. And then eventually I didn't have to work, um, half the year doing something else. And I mean, I still do some other things that aren't writing, but like mostly I just live off my writing. So I still feel the same way in that we should jealously guard our time as much as we're able, because then if we do have something that is a dream or like, if you want to make a living off your art, if you want to do this or that, like if you give all of your time to a full-time job, you won't be able to do that. And obviously a lot of the time people don't have a choice. And if you do make that choice, there's a lot of risks and like you don't have real stability in a lot of ways. So, so I still feel the same way that if it's possible at all, that we should be like, yeah, very possessive of our own time. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
how long did you work on this book? Like um, how many years? Because didn't you start this a long time ago? Yeah, 14 years. I started it in 2003. Wait, is that right? Maybe that's not right. Uh, 2005, I think. 2006? 2005 or 2006? Um, I don't know how many years that is, but something like 14 years. And yeah, because I, so in my early 20s, I started writing zines about my travels on trains and about my adventures and about my mom too. And every year I would put out one and it was like hundred pages. It was so, like so thick I could like hardly fold it. <laughs> and a lot of those original stories are now in the sunset route. Cause I, and I've like rewritten them, you know, so many times. So yeah, a long time. And then some of the materials more recent for sure, but a lot of it, I started working on like 14 years ago. I find that very comforting that, I don't know, not to say like that it should take that long, but I think sometimes because most of the writing that I have done, pretty much all of it has been more like blog format, like internet type writing, something that you write and that gets like published and turned around really quickly. And that happens on more of that faster pace. I think that it, or same can be true for people on social media or that type of thing. We get really used to the really fast turnaround, the really instant gratification of people interacting with the work that I find that it sometimes makes it more difficult for me to do longer, slower, maybe more frustrating projects, things that are going to take, I mean, 14 years, I know you weren't working on it continuously for 14 years, but that's a really long time. And I think sometimes I, I mean, selfishly need the reminder that big works of art or athletic achievement or anything really that we want to do in our life that's, you know, more than 500 words, so to speak, takes time and that that's okay. Yeah. And definitely my my first book, Through Hiking Will Break Your Heart, which I self-published, could have benefited from more time. <laughs> but I felt I'd like done a Kickstarter to pay for it and I was a year late. So I was like, I got to publish this. But I do think that because I, I, I get so much out of having stuff published and seen and perceived by others, like having my art consumed feels like it like finishes the process where I'm like, yeah, I made something beautiful out of this hard emotional thing. And now other people are seeing it. And that makes, that's like the catharsis, you know? So I get a lot out of having things. So it is hard when something takes a long time. Cause I'm like, I want this to be out there, but then I just, I try to tell myself that once it's out there, it can be out there for a long time. So there's not necessarily a rush, you know, but I definitely would have been hard if this had been my only project because I think, yeah, all the vlogging I've done and then the the first book that I kind of rushed out, like all those things have given me that have like fed me the way I feel like publishing something and having people read it like really feeds me, you know? So it would have been hard if this was the only project I would have been like, ah, you know, but since it had been like a back burner thing for so long that it wasn't like the only thing I had, but yeah, I I think it it is hard to have that, to have that patience for me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, same completely. So, okay. I have to ask in that passage that you read when we were setting that up. So it's you and eight other people that are living in this house. And in the book you share that there was one bathroom Uh for nine people (laughs) and that it was never once cleaned in the Uh entire year that you lived there. And I cannot, Kurt, what is that? Okay. I have to, I have to say though, the maximum number of people that lived there while I was there at one point was 11 for what it's worth. That doesn't Um, make this any better. (laughs) I know it was. So this is something I think about a lot and I still haven't found the answer to. So back then when I was sort of coming of age, it, it was like the punk anarchist 
back then we called it primitivist, but that now people call it rewilding or people have different terms seen in Portland at that time. There was this pride in never bathing. And I've thought about it a lot. And for the life of me, I can't remember why. Like, I literally can't, like, I feel like now the different like trends that come and go, you're like, oh yeah, people feel that this personal lifestyle choice is honorable because X, Y, Z, you know, and then personal lifestyle choices because we have all these big systemic issues we can't change. And so we, we like to latch on to personal lifestyle choices because it feels like something we can control and what we feel like we can control or what will make us feel better, like goes in and out of fashion all the time, you know, like, oh, let's be zero waste or let's do this, whatever. Anyway, one of those things at that time was like, it was literally a point of pride not to bathe. Like it was considered like morally better. And I have no idea why. Like, Mm-mm. you can't I, see my face right now, but like, okay. I ha- like there were literally people who, like this one guy, Andrew, who lived, would live at that house when he was in town. Cause a lot of people traveled constantly. And then when they were in town, they would live at the house. So there were always people coming and going. And he, he would say that he only bathed in natural bodies of water. So he would only bathe if he was like near a creek or a lake. And also you wouldn't wash your clothes. That's another, that was another point of pride. And it wasn't like, I mean, it makes sense if you're traveling, you know, like if you're riding the train, you know, there's no way to bathe, whatever. But this was like people at the moment in their year where they were living in a house, you know, and he, his clothes were so dirty that they, like his car hearts shone like they were waxed cap canvas. Like they were like shiny and you could, he could like run his thumbnail along his car hearts and it would like make like a curl of wax basically. Um, but it was like just oil <laughs> from, I don't know what. So nobody was inclined to clean the bathroom. That makes sense. That no. checks out. Yeah. So no. So also the other thing is we didn't, we just didn't have a good system for chores. Uh, I think because there was so much chaos and so many people coming and going all the time that, Yeah. And the other thing I think about a lot and kind of shudder is there was like a towel hanging on the towel rack that never got washed or changed. And if you washed your hands, which probably nobody did, you would like dry them on this towel. And if you showered, you would use this towel. Wait, so there was one towel also for nine people in this bathroom that didn't get cleaned? Yeah. I think this is where you've lost me in this book. I can't. It was disgusting. (laughs) Even back then, I remember thinking that it was really disgusting. Was it a, okay? Was it a thing that you thought it was disgusting, but it like wasn't cool to like say anything? So in your head, you were just like, uh, "I guess I'm going to deal with this." I, I think it's not that it wasn't cool. It was that like the thought of trying to create a system for so many people and so much chaos was overwhelming. So I just mm-hmm. like took a back seat and I was like, "Okay." I was like, "This is just the way it is." I mean, I lived at that house for less than two years, and then the houses I lived at after that were marginally better as I got older, which was definitely a relief for me. Like I, that level of filth in the bathroom was like, you know, gross to me, but I definitely was like, all right, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to touch this, but do you, do you want to hear the scabies story? The scabies story? Uh, Sure. Yes, I guess. I don't know. Do I? (laughs) So I don't know if you've ever had scabies. I have not. Okay. Okay. Because in the Western world, we're so obsessed with bathing and changing our clothes. For most people, it's actually really hard to get scabies because if you change your clothes every day, scabies, they'll like maybe get on your clothes from someone else, let's say. And then it takes them a little while to like kind of embed themselves in your skin. And so if you change your clothes every day, 
it's hard to get scabies if you bathe every day. Are they similar to bed bugs? They're no, they're these tiny mites that are so small you can't see them, and they burrow into your skin. And then when they shit in there, you are allergic to their shit, and so you get it's a nightmare. It is a oh my god, what kind of content warning do I put on this? It is a (laughs) nightmare. Anyway, if you bathe every day and you change your clothes every day, it's almost impossible to get scabies. So they're really rare in the US. They're obviously more common in like houseless populations or you see them sometimes with children. But because houseless populations don't get a lot of like representation or like care, a lot of doctors won't even know how to check for scabies because that's like the probably the only population in the US where you still see them a lot is houseless populations. So this house was a perfect environment for scabies because nobody ever bathed or changed their clothes. So they came through and like 14 people ended up getting scabies, but we, no one could figure out what they had because when we would go to the free clinic, they'd be like, I don't know what this is because it's like something that doctors just don't know about anymore because it's just houseless people, you know, who aren't getting care. So we find by the time, that's why so many people got them because by the time we figured out what they were, it had like been a while. And so they'd been passed around, but Scabies is a nightmare, essentially. So this is really funny. Before I got scabies, I like think about this all the time. Before I got scabies, I'd like never had trouble sleeping in my life. I was like, but they they also say this about when you're young. It's like the golden age of sleep. And then as you get older, you know, your sleep gets less good. But I'd always just been like a great sleeper. I never even thought about it. And then the scabies are most active at night. And so that is when your whole body, body starts itching. Like the itch is insane. It's so insane that it feels almost orgasmic to scratch. And you scratch so much, even when you're asleep, that like you end up covered in bruises and you just can't sleep. And it's this like torment that happens every night. And I got, I couldn't sleep. And then ever since then, I've had chronic insomnia. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> like it like definitely like triggered something that I was, my body was like, okay, it's time for our sleep to get not good. But anyway, so for months I didn't know what I had and I just had this horrible itch all night long. Anyway, we finally figured out what it was. And then the way you treat it. So this scabies have been around for thousands of years. And the way the Romans used to treat it is they would cover themselves in this like heavy cream, like some sort of oily, heavy cream, like head to toe. And they would do it day and night for like two weeks. And that actually smothers them. And and that's the only natural treatment that works, which is obviously too messy to really fit into people's lifestyles these days. So now what people do is there's this permethrin cream, which is like a it's like a pesticide and it's a neurotoxin and it kills the scabies by like destroying their nervous systems. And you cover yourself in it head to toe and then you go to sleep and the morning you wake up and you wash it off. And it's really bad for you. You actually absorb it and it like comes out in your urine. But it, that cream creates such a bad rash that usually, and this happened to us, everyone thinks they still have scabies and then they treat again. And you're only supposed to use the cream like a couple times in your whole life because it's really toxic. And we all got scabies twice like actual. So I ended up treating four times. Anyway, eventually the nightmare was over and then we all got really careful. I was like living in a different house by this time. We all got really careful about like, you know, never lay on someone else's bed, like all these different things. (laughs) But that's the scabies story. Yeah. That's your scabies story. Mm -hmm. Well, now I have learned, I've learned multiple things. (laughs) Scabies are terrible, and I'm so grateful that... <laughs> TLDR, scabies are terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my God. So, okay, so you're living in this house, and is that when you started riding freight trains? 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, so that was another sort of thing people were doing at the time as like a lifestyle choice was people were like, you know, peak oil is coming, consuming gas is bad. So riding freight trains, sneaking onto freight trains, obviously it's illegal, sneaking onto freight trains and riding them across the country is an ethical way to travel because you're not consuming any gas. So it's like, um, you're not like being, like the idea was that you could somehow like opt out. Obviously you can't, you know, but the idea that you could be not participating in these systems. So like, oh, if you travel on freight trains, you're not using any gas. And also things that were illegal, but in like a low key way were very popular. So like shoplifting, riding freight trains, things that, you know, would get you like a misdemeanor at max. So that, that was also something that was really popular. So yeah, freight trains are popular. So everyone was doing it and it was definitely like something that made you cool. And the irony is that, you know, the, the sort of scene I was in, it was very white and a lot of people came from money. Like almost everyone I would say came from money and had gone to very expensive liberal arts schools. And then they were part of this scene where everyone was performing poverty so hard, obviously to compensate because, you know, everyone had realized like how fucked the system is and how complicit we all are. And, you know, we, I feel like white people and people come from money. Like when you sort of have that awareness of like, you know, at whatever point you realize like how these systems work and there's all this guilt and shame. And then people kind of scramble to try and figure out like how to make themselves feel better. And so I think the sort of extreme to which people performed poverty was part of that. <laughs> um, but it was definitely very cool. And it was funny cause I didn't come from money, but I still got the appeal where I was like, yeah, like these systems are fucked and I don't want to be a part of them. So I'm going to yeah, not bathe and like ride freight trains and like do these different things. I mean, we didn't actually have money, but a lot of people had access to familiar familial wealth. But on the day to day, yeah, people chose not to work very much because they wanted to do all these other projects they were doing. And so Mm -hmm. um, it kind of fit with that. But I wanted to be cool. And I also had never really had like adventures and I also hadn't really traveled. So And it it also, like, it was something that really scared me. It was the first thing I ever did that was, like, truly empowering. Like, I feel like this, you know, this happens for a lot of different people in different ways. Like, maybe they get into long-distance hiking or maybe they get into, like, whatever thing that seems really scary and overwhelming and hard. And then they figure it out and it's, like, it kind of changes their life in a way. And Mm -hmm. I feel like writing Freight Trains was that for me because it was the first thing I found like that where I was, like, this is scary and um, intimidating. And then I learned about it and did it and felt so empowered. And I was like, wow, like I can do stuff like this. So that it really changed me in that. I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter as much even what the thing is, but doing something that feels initially too hard for you or impossible for you, if you actually manage to do it, it's incredibly empowering. Yes. Or if it's something that you also, if it's something that you grow up being told that like, wasn't for you or that you couldn't do or, you know, whatever sort of intimidating thing that you weren't socialized. Like we're socialized to be like, these are the things you can do. These are the things you can't, you know? And so it's one of those things that you feel like you were told you couldn't do, then it's like empowering in that way too. Okay. So I would love to hear the story of your very first freight train ride. As you just mentioned, it's illegal. You didn't mention this, but you talk about it in the book that it's actually quite dangerous. So set the scene, tell me this story. So, so one of my fears about this book coming out is that, which I think is legitimate and maybe I should have thought about this. 
is <laughs> I'm actually like maybe encouraging people to do something very dangerous. <laughs> like, honestly, I'm like, wait, now that I'm, I'm like, maybe there should be a disclaimer in the book. Maybe there is. I don't think there is. I don't think. I don't remember there being one. There's no disclaimer. <laughs> Oops. LOL. I don't know. I think <laughs> there's lots of memoirs and stories that have yeah. th- things that are equally or more dangerous that don't come with disclaimers. So. Well, fingers crossed. I, di- I didn't read this thinking that Karen's telling me to go do this thing. So Yeah, fingers crossed. Anyway, yeah, it's... Uh, it's very dangerous. It's so the most dangerous thing about it, which is the thing that I was like, oh, I should have thought about this is if you learn about it and try to do it on your own, that's when it's really dangerous. It's kind of like driving a car. Whereas if you didn't, if you didn't know how to drive and you just got in a car and went for a drive, it would be incredibly dangerous because you wouldn't understand traffic laws. You wouldn't understand how the car works, like all these different things. But if you learn to drive from someone else and learn all these, like driving, like traffic laws aren't like intuitive, you know? Like you have to learn how traffic works. And it's the same with riding a freight train. It's not intuitive. So you have to learn these things that aren't intuitive in order to do it safely. So the danger is in, and, and this is where like the vast majority of accidents happen with in train yards and with trains and people is people who don't know anything about train yards or trains. And then they either, you know, walk across a train yard or try to ride a train for fun. Cause there's things you don't realize are very dangerous that are actually super dangerous about trains. So I learned, so I actually know someone, I know, I know someone who's, who was like very injured, who, who is alive, but is, you know, disabled for life because they like rode a freight train pretty young. They didn't know what they were doing. And I learned from other people, which was really great. So, so if you ever want to ride a train, (laughs) disclaimer, I guess don't ride a train. It's illegal and dangerous. But if you were to ride a train, you would want to find someone who knows what they're doing and you would want to learn from them and you would not want to attempt it alone. Because if you do learn from someone who has safety in mind, who doesn't do reckless shit just for fun, and who does it with a mind to safety, it's actually very safe because trains don't derail very often. And whereas, you know, there's car accidents all the time. So if you actually understand how freight trains work and how train yards work, which takes time to learn, you can actually, aside from the exposure to the exhaust, which is kind of toxic, you know, over the course of days, especially if you go through a tunnel, it's like super toxic. Aside from that, it's actually very safe if you do it carefully. So I learned from people and I definitely made some mistakes and ended up in some risky situations. But yeah, my first time I was in Portland and at this house, the Witcham house with all the people and the extremely dirty bathroom. And my friend Sammy and I, it was February and we were very depressed because it was very cold and rainy and we didn't turn on the heat in this house because we couldn't afford it. And, uh, you know, we would just drink mason jars of tea all day and just be kind of cold and miserable. We decided we wanted to ride a freight train to Texas and then take a bus to Guatemala. And and that part where we go to Guatemala isn't actually in the book because it didn't quite fit in the story. But so we wanted to ride a train to Texas. And so we asked Andrew, who is the guy whose pants were so dirty that they looked like they were waxed canvas who only bathed in lakes and rivers. We asked him, and Sammy had ridden freight trains before, so she knew the safety, the safety elements of it. But the thing is, every place you want to go on a train, uh, you get there differently. And so if you want to go someplace, you actually have to find someone who has ridden that route and you have to ask them questions. And that's the only way 
you know, aside from like maybe months of trial and error, that's the only way to really figure out how to go somewhere is to find someone who's done it and um, be like, hey, like, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to tell people how to ride freight trains, but you have to get basically instructions from someone. And so Andrew was like, yeah, this is how you catch this train that will take you to LA. And then in LA, you can take another train to Texas. And he like wrote down some directions for us for once we were in LA. And we were like, well, how long does the train take to get from Portland to LA? And he was like, I don't know, like two days. And we didn't, I didn't really know at the time, like how much water I needed over the course of a couple of days. Like I'd never really backpacked or done anything like that. And so we, we just brought two liters each and we went and waited at the spot at the catch spot in Portland. And it was February. So in Portland, it was like, you know, 45 degrees and raining, but the train would take us up into the Cascade mountains, which I didn't realize at the time where it was actually very cold and snowy. And we got on our train. And by, by that time I drank one of my two liters of water (laughs) and it ended up taking, I can't, I can't remember. It says in the book, like three or four days to get to LA. And the first thing that happened after we left Portland is we were riding in this car that had these huge um, holes in the floor and either side of the hole, there was a little metal ledge that was just wide enough to roll out your foam sleeping pad and your sleeping bag. And then you had to be very careful not to like let your stuff fall into the hole. So I like rolled out my sleeping pad and my sleeping bag. And then I crossed to the other side of the car carefully around the hole to talk to Sammy And then the train picked up speed and the hole turned into a vacuum and my sleeping bag like was sucked through the hole and I lost my sleeping bag. So that was just a few hours after leaving Portland before we climbed up into the Cascade Mountains. So I was like, oh no. And so Sammy had uh, this tarp. She had an extra tarp or she was carrying a tarp. So she gave it to me and I sort of like wrapped it around myself and put on all my layers. And then we got up into the mountains and it was very cold. I don't know how cold it was, but another thing about the train is when you're going downhill, you know, you really, or on a totally flat stretch, you really pick up speed. You're going like 60 miles an hour and you have nothing to protect you from the wind except like this little lip of metal. And so I'm just being pummeled by this cold wind and there's just snow outside and, you know, it's night and the trees are all sparkling and I was so cold. And I'd, I'd heard, and Sammy was like asleep, deeply cocooned in her sleeping bag, you know, and I was just, had this tarp around me, just like so, so cold. And I'd heard that at the front of the train, there are a bunch of engines and that there are only crew in the first engine, but that all the engines are heated and they all have like a little room with captain's chairs and a heat and like a little fridge full of water in a bathroom. That's what I'd heard. And so I got it in, cause I couldn't sleep. I got it, this idea in my head that every time the train would stop, I would get off and try to run to the front. And if I could make it to one of those engines, I could warm up, but you know, trains can be two miles long. And normally you're riding near the back because you don't want to be seen or because when the train stops where the back end is, is where it's safest to get on because you're most hidden. So we are close to the back. So the train would stop and I would get off and just start running like super numb, just like stumbling from being so stiff from the cold, running on the ballast, which is like steeply angled next to the tracks and like covered in snow, like my boots, like breaking through the snow, trying to get to the front of the train. And then I would hear this hiss as the brakes released, which means the train's about to start moving again. And I would be like, oh, fuck. And so I'd have to turn around and run back to my car and try to get on before the train started moving. Because once the train's moving, it's really dangerous to get on or off. 
because it creates this, it like pulls you under the train in a way. Like if you fall, you're most likely to go under the train once it's moving because the way it's like pulling. So I never made it to the front because it was so far and the train would only stop for like 10 minutes. But I did that all night. And then finally day came and we were still in the mountains and it was so cold. And now we are out of water too. So I was pretty thirsty. So it was hard to like eat much. And then that night, I can't remember if it was that night or the next morning, it's in the book, but at some point we finally dropped out of the mountains and into the warmer part of California and we were warmer, but we were super dehydrated and like my tongue was swollen in my mouth and I was like so thirsty, which was my first experience with like, <laughs> like dehydration of that sort. And then finally we got to LA and got off the train and found a taqueria and like drank so much water and ate and I was able to find another sleeping bag. But that was my first, first long train ride. So you're in LA and you're finally having water after being so thirsty that your tongue swollen in your mouth. Are you thinking like, fuck yeah, that was awesome. I'm excited to do that again. Like what's going through your mind after this first experience? Yeah, I, I think I was. I mean, I was very young, you know. <laughs> um, obviously now I would be like, I hate this so much. But <laughs> I mean, I stopped feeling like, wanting to have that sort of adventure like 12 years ago, which is the last time I tried to ride a train. But at that point in my life, I was like, yeah, I was like, fuck yeah, this is so incredible. So then, then we, uh, we found what we thought was the spot, judging from the directions we had from Andrew, we found what we thought was the spot to catch the train to Texas. And we literally built this little like house out of tumbleweeds. It didn't have a roof, but it had walls and, and we could like hide in there. So we would just chill in there. And then uh, it took us like three days to get a train or something because it turned out we were in the wrong spot and we had to find this other spot. But yeah, I was definitely having like a great adventure. <laughs> mm. So some like additional sort of logistical questions. You mentioned that obviously the water that you're drinking when you're on the train, you're bringing with you because it's not like backpacking where you're crossing water sources or like refilling your water. So you have to come on the train with everything that you need. What are you eating and what's the going to the bathroom situation? Mm. Good questions. So I think on that trip, I brought like trail mix, dried mango, probably like some bread. I think I brought canned beans because weight wasn't as big of an issue as when you're backpacking because you do have to carry it to the train, which is really heavy because, you know, often you're carrying, if we were smart and later on, we learned this, but you're carrying like two gallons of water and then like all this heavy food. But once you're on the train, the weight doesn't matter. And often you're on the train for like three days at a time. So uh, yeah, I would bring canned goods, a lot of canned beans and like maybe some hot sauce and bread and uh, cheese and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you're eating these things out of cans and then you have to pee oh, what yeah. happens or you have to poop what happens. So, so peeing, you can like once one of your gallons is empty, you can cut off the top or if you have a different water bottle, you can cut off the top and pee in that and throw it over the side. Or you can, if you're on a car that has a lot of space, you can go all the way to the other end and just pee on the metal and the wind will just like blow it away and dry it up. Uh, taking a shit, you can either get off the train when it's stopped and hope the train doesn't start to pull away while there's a turd <laughs> coming out of your butt. Or this is what I liked to do. You wait until you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, like, uh, going through a forest on a mountainside, like far from any road, just kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then I would, I mean, obviously this is not leave no trace, 
but I would take a shit on a piece of cardboard and just like throw it over the side. Uh, or you can shit in, obviously I don't recommend these things, but, or you can shit in like a couple plastic grocery bags layered inside each other and then like tie it up like a doggy bag and like take it off with you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shitting, shitting is kind of hard. And obviously if you're with someone else, you want to go to the next car to take a shit. So normally they're the porches, you can jump from porch to porch, which is dangerous if the train is moving. And even if it's stopped because the train could just start moving at any moment, like you don't, since you're so far from the engines, you have no idea when the train's going to start to move. So it can just like jerk forward and you can like fall between the cars, but you can, if you're with someone else, you do want to like go to the next car to take a shit, obviously, unless you're close like that, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> it's like the roulette of, well, the train's either going to start moving or it's not going to start moving Yeah. <laughs> while I'm pooping. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, it was gross. Yeah. I felt, I, I, I told you this um, like earlier in the week where we were talking, it was such an interesting experience for me to read this book because I felt like I was trying to read it like as three different people at the same time. Like I was trying to read it as if I'm someone who doesn't know you and I'm picking this standalone book up off the shelf, right? And I don't know anything about you. And then I was trying to read it as someone who was going to be like interviewing you about the story. Mm-hmm. And then I'm reading it as my actual self, like who has known you for years and right, like yeah. as my friend, I'm like, oh, I'm getting so much more context. It made so much sense to me why you wound up loving long distance hiking the way that you did. It seemed like the like easier, more chill version of your entire life leading up to that. Yes, it, it was. So I, in 2009 was the last time I tried to ride a freight train and it was actually in Alaska and I got busted immediately because I'd always wanted to ride one in Alaska, but the problem is in the summer, it doesn't get dark at all. So it's really hard to sneak around. So I convinced my friend to do this and we both got caught and it was a bummer. But after that, I just, cause riding freight trains, everything happens in the middle of the night and it's a lot of like playing cat and mouse, um, with, like the rail cop, which is fun when you're young, you know, it's like, Oh, you got to run, you got to hide, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you know, the worst thing that will happen is like a misdemeanor or a trespassing ticket. So if that's not something you care that much about, then it feels like exciting if you're young <laughs> and you're into that. I mean, obviously having a bunch of misdemeanors on your record will affect you. And it, it has affected me some, but it, uh, you know, there are worse things, like there are worse things I could have done. You know, I was young and very traumatized and you know, needed to feel certain things. But yeah, at some point I was like, I'm too old. Like my adrenals are very tired. Like I can't do all these things at like 3 a.m. anymore. And I also didn't want to be... Also, oh, it got to a point, this wasn't a big part of it, where my favorite parts, maybe this is always true, my favorite parts of riding the trains had been the way it takes you through wilderness because often railroad tracks go in a place that where there's not a road system um, because the way they built roads and the way they built railroads is really different. So like if you're going through North Dakota, for example, the train can take you through all these beautiful prairies with like crumbling old houses next to them that were built up around the railroad. But like the highway is nowhere in sight because when they finally built the highway, they built it somewhere else. And so, or, you know, trains will take you up through the mountains on this narrow track where it's just forest on either side and there's no road to be seen. And so you get to go to all these really cool places and that, and then you get off the train, you sleep in those places, you walk around in those places, you wait for more trains in those places. And that was my favorite part. And when I learned about long distance hiking, I learned that you could just walk through 
the wilderness for months at a time. And it was like also an escape and also an adventure and also very hard, but you didn't have to worry about criminal charges and you didn't have to worry about, you, you were able, you could get a full night's sleep and you, you could just take care of yourself better. It wasn't as hard on the adrenals and also all the exercise, the, all the movement felt really good. So it was, it, I, I stopped riding freight trains and for a couple of years, I didn't have anything like that. And I was really depressed. That's when I tried to go to college and I was like, I hate this. Cause I've always been really bad at school. Like I just can't focus and I just get all this anxiety. And then I discovered long distance hiking and I was like, this is so cool. Cause it like, it fills that need, but I don't mm-hmm. have to ride freight trains to do it. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So the book goes back and forth timeline-wise between, right, these like freight trains and kind of adventures and things that are happening at that age, and then back and forth with your like quite early childhood, which was really interesting to read the like, okay, this is what was happening at five years old, six years old, eight years old, and then this is kind of fast-forwarding, right, like 10 plus years into that, which I found as like structurally really, really interesting. But one of the things that I was curious about in reading that because you talk about your experiences as a kid, like growing up in poverty and, you know, the stories that you tell about your mom and then some of that sort of like leads into what you've already talked about so far. But I would love for you to talk a bit about your experience in like moving from one world to another world and class as you've gotten older. Oh, like my growing up versus like my adult life. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that I think about the most is, and I feel like one reason I wanted to write this book is for people who can relate, you know, because I feel like childhood poverty is actually really common in the U.S. and it's actually just becoming more common. But growing up in extreme poverty in the U.S. is like, I I experienced the world one way where I was like, oh, this is the world, you know? And then when I became an adult and I was able to, you know, I was no longer helpless. And so I could, you know, I could work and I could feed myself and I could interact with the world in a different way. I was able to slowly sort of find this other world. But that first world stayed with me as like a shadow. And I still feel it layered under this world. Like it's, it is very much like two worlds layered on top of each other and it never goes away. And obviously it really affects like how, what I perceive as like possible. Like, yeah, like I have such a hard time feeling safe because, you know, for the first 14 years of my life, I was only safe when I was alone. (laughs) So like I have a hard time feeling safe in relationships and obviously life is built on relationships and also relationships are the only thing that make life worth living. (laughs) And I like, you know, want them and crave them and have them, but it's the way I struggle is like meek, you know? in that way. And I do, I feel like, you know, partly because I'm white. And so I was able to, you know, if you grow up poor, but you're white, then when you're an adult, you can pass as someone who maybe people don't look at me and think like that person grew up poor. You know, you can like white people are just default seen as, I don't know, like of a certain class you know, Mm -hmm. or like passing as a certain class. And so I, I kind of, and also the communities I chose, ironically, even though I was around all these punks performing poverty, they were all people from like wealth with like expensive college educations. And so even then being around all these punks, I had 
jumped class. Like I had, I had changed the class of the people I was around uh, pretty intensely. Like everybody had these like, you know, very extensive educations and, and I could, you know, that's easy to do when you're white. You can sort of be, you know, when you're white, you can be whoever you want. You can just control how people perceive you essentially. And you have more, you're able to do that. So, so I think that that first life, yeah, it's this shadow that haunts me and that I struggle to reconcile with like the world I'm in now. Like now it's like, I'm able to pay my bills mostly with writing. And that feels like, you know, even though I'm not wealthy, it makes me feel like incredibly wealthy. The fact that I can pay my rent with writing, you know, is like insane. Like who gets to do that? Um, and the fact that I can go to the grocery store and buy food when I need it, you know, is like that will never stop blowing my mind. Like the ability to just buy food will never stop blowing my mind. And uh, I'd love to like be able to like own a house someday you know, like I can't right now, but I would love that if I could. And yeah, it's really interesting. It's an interesting world. Like the way we, I mean, the way we deal with class in this country is we just don't, we just, mm-hmm. we just ignore it. Like, obviously, like if we organized around class, that would be such a huge threat to this uh, pyramid scheme <laughs> called capitalism. And maybe that's one of the reasons that it doesn't happen is because that it would be like such a threat, you know? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't looking for a specific answer. I was just, you know, curious on what your reflection is on that. I mean, in this, I guess this sort of related, one of the things that was really clear for me was that the stories you were telling in this book felt very honest and reflective, but didn't read at all like trauma porn. And I would love to hear about some of the intentional choices that you made in deciding how to write about the painful experiences from your childhood. Oh, yeah. So I, so there's actually a lot that I wrote that didn't end up in the book. I, I originally wrote kind of about every bad memory I have as a child. What was that like? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, it felt like important to do just initially, just to, because you want, you just want to talk about the pain you've experienced, you know? But then when it was time to shape this, the, the original um, draft, when I sold this book, the draft I had was like 140,000 words. I think that the finished book is like 90,000 words, maybe a little more, but it included so many more. Like I just dragged the reader through all of this pain and then reading it back to myself, I was just cringing. I was like, this isn't fun to read. I was like, this is terrible to read. And I, I think there are authors who writing memoir, what they want to do is literally drag you through all the pain. And I think there's some readers that probably want that too. And I've read memoirs like that and reading memoirs like that is hard for me because it, it feels traumatizing. Like I'm like, no, don't go back. And then they go back and then they leave and then they go back and then they leave. And you're like, no, don't go back. And it, it feels like really hard. I'm like, I'm like, is this triggering? Like, this is so hard. And I didn't want to do that to the reader also because yeah, I didn't want to make a book that the whole appeal was being dragged through all these horrible experiences. <laughs> um, so I would, and, and I was like, you know, I can just like allude, I can give enough examples to like allude to the fact that I was living in like a horror movie for the first 14 years of my life. And it's like, okay, the reader gets it, you know? And then, mm-hmm. and then that creates the depth for the rest of the book 
but I, I was like, I don't have to drag people through every single thing, <laughs> which is hard because, you know, you do want to just tell all the stories. <laughs> yeah. But the, that question of what's the experience that you're trying to give to the person on the other side of it feels really generous actually. Yeah. I just, I guess because I have read a few memoirs that were really good, but I personally, that's not the experience I look for when I read. And I guess that's how I write is like, I I like assume that I'm like, well, whoever wants what I want, I'll just give them that. But yeah, I didn't want it to be too painful. I wanted, I wanted to be more catharsis, more healing, more freedom, more all these things and less like dragging you through the pain. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the purpose of writing, you know, trying to find meaning, trying to create order out of chaos in order to have a finished product that reads that way and is understandable that way. You have to pick and choose what you're including and it doesn't make the final version not true. But there's, unless someone lived every single moment of your life by your side and also had access to the inside of your own head, like there's no way to have it be the complete exact map of what happened. Yeah, totally. And that's not the point. Like that's not why we're reading books. I think that can be good for the first draft just to get it all out there. Cause then you also know everything you have to work with. So then you can like look at all the pieces and try and figure out what you want to include. So just to vomit it, I'm really a big fan of just the like initial vomiting that really works for me, (laughs) but yeah, definitely it won't serve like the story to include every single thing. Okay, so process question. So you have this 140,000 word, right? You have this really long draft where you have memory vomited, right? Or like painful <laughs> trauma vomited on uh-huh. these pages. What did you do? Like, did you print it out and then go through and be like, this one's too painful, cross it off? Like, what was the actual process of getting to the book that you have? That's a great question. You know, I listened to this podcast once that talked about different creative careers and how they progress over the course of a life and how it relates to the way that your brain changes as you age. And they said that with writers, most writers don't come into their careers, like the vast majority, that like it's a really rare exception. Most writers don't come into their careers until their forties. And they think it's because the way your brain changes as you age. And I'm 38. And the last couple of years working on this book. So my first book was just a trail blog. So it was just like day after day after day. So there was no it wasn't hard to figure out the structure. It was just like a series of consecutive days, very easy structure. This book was actually structured like a novel and I'd never done that before. And I, you know, for my whole life, I've been trying to write novels or trying to write manuscripts, trying to write books and writing these things that are just chaos. A lot of them have been previous versions of the sunset route. Like I've tried to write it like multiple times and it's just chaos. And I was just like, it felt like it was too hard for my brain. I was just like, I can't fucking do that. I can't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit in my brain. Like it doesn't fit my brain. And I definitely think as I'm aging, I'm getting, there's a lot, you know, there's things I'm losing. Like I feel less quick. I feel less clever. But weirdly the last couple of years, the ability to hold a book length project in my head has started to happen. Like it's incredible. And I was, I always think about that podcast and I was like, oh my God, this is why writers come into their careers in their forties because book length projects are really hard to hold in your brain and it take your brain has to change before you can do it. And, uh, it even started, it was like, it was happening as I was working on this because at first I just had those 140,000 words of chaos, you know, and I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like this is so overwhelming. And I never printed it also. It was just like on my computer screen, which is like extra chaos. And then I would just work, try and try and try. And it started to like, 
happen in my brain where I was like, oh my God, I can like move these pieces around. Like I can like hold it. Like I can, like it still was extreme. Like it felt like every day I was trying to do the Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle. Is that the hard one? The Sunday? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Every day I was like waking up and like, it was so, it, my brain like hurt. Like I was like, this is so hard, but eventually, and I had to change a lot of things. Like at first I was like, okay, the, I'm going to have the, I was like, okay, maybe it'll be chronological, just all chronological. And then I was like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. And then I was like, okay, the train parts will be present tense and the parts from my childhood will be past tense. And then that was really hard to read weirdly. So then I actually had to do research because my editor was like, okay, I don't think this works. And I reread it and I was like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't work. And then I was like, I know people have, cause I really like writing in the present tense. It's also supposedly a trend right now. It's also supposedly, apparently some people are just repulsed by it, which explains, I have like a number of one-star reviews for my first book that people are just like, upset to the point of rage that's written in present tense. First, <laughs> first person, first person, present tense. First person, present tense. Like they are enraged. Like they want me to die. Oh my God. Because my, people need to get a different hobby. But because, okay. because my book is written in first person, present tense. Because apparently- Which I love, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I love reading books like that. But apparently some people have this visceral reaction. Anyway, I love it. So I was really dedicated to having at least part of this book in first person, present tense. But I was like, how do I, I was like, how do I move back and forth in time with first person present tense? Then I had to get a bunch of books. Like I just bought a bunch of books on my Kindle or downloaded them from the library that are written that way. And there's a number out right now that are really good. And I had to read them and just flip through and read chapters and be like, how the fuck do you do this? And I had to like copy people. I'd be like, oh, this person, okay, the chapter starts out. She's sitting on the train. Like maybe you can guess what this is. She's sitting on the train and then she flashbacks to that morning when she's talking to this detective. And during the flashback, it goes to past tense because she's sitting on the train flashing back. But then the next chapter is two years earlier. And that's in present to first person present tense because it's not a flashback. Yeah. <laughs> it was Girl on the Train, which is, I really like that book. And also it's a really good example of that writing style. Like the author is like brilliant. You don't even realize that that's what's happening. And reading it, I was like, holy shit, this whole book is written in first person present tense, even though it jumps around in time, like every couple pages. So that, so all these things were like really hard for my brain, (laughs) but I, so it was a real process, but I eventually figured it out. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is getting easier as I get older to like, organize. Oh, and then at one point, the thing, a thing that was really helpful is I'd figured out more or less the order, but it still felt off. And so I just wrote, I took index cards and on every index card, I wrote down a section name and then I put them all on the floor and I was like, I'm going to order them like this and see what feels intuitive. And that created like the final order of the book. That is a very useful tool. I, it's, it's always funny recording a podcast where like this is just you and I talking, but then also holding in my mind at the same time that other people are going to be listening and they're going to get whatever it is that they get or don't get from it. So I don't know what anyone else got from what you just said, but selfishly, very much what I'm getting as someone who a couple years ago, like two and a half, three years ago, wrote, I don't know, like an 83,000 word draft of a book that was just bad. Like, Karen, it's just not good. And... I hated it so much and felt all this kind of like embarrassment or like, why isn't this better that I just didn't really touch it for years. And I'm like 
working on just, even if it never like sees the light of day for myself to go through the process of like picking the draft up again, like being someone who can rewrite a bad draft, like cutting out the parts that are boring, figuring out what is the actual narrative arc here. Like that feels worthwhile for me to do, even if like the project itself never like goes to anyone else. And just hearing A, that yours took you on and off 14 years. And that also you had a hard time holding it in your brain the way that you just described feels very, very comforting. So if that feels generous that you are willing to pull back the curtain a little bit on what this process has been like. Yeah. Writing those books that never come to anything are never a waste. Like I feel like it's like training for an ultra marathon, which I don't want just to make people think I run ultra marathons because I, I never have done that. But when you're, but I've tried to train various times and then given up. But when you train for an ultra marathon, you run lots of really long runs And none of those are the ultra, but you have to run them to train for the ultra. And it's the same with writing. And you write many, many things that are book length or close to book length that you end up hating or not understanding or not knowing what to do with. And that is how you eventually, for me, that's how I eventually got to a point where I could finish something that I actually liked. (laughs) But it's not a waste because it's the training, you know? Totally. And, but also that's one of the problems of being really conditioned into the quick gratification turnaround of doing anything on the internet is that you don't have a lot of what feels like training, right? And so it's like almost like switching your brain into doing something that feels similar because it's still the same like art form, but it's actually really different. So more perseverance necessary. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm going to ask you to tell another story from the book that I loved very much. The much later in the book than the first train ride that you were just talking about is the story of your Craigslist ride to Alaska, where you're headed back to Alaska, basically after having left. Will you tell that story? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to go to Alaska one year. Uh, it was 2009 and I'd already been back a few times in the summer and this was March. And I wanted to go up and meet this person, Tara, who I'd met on the internet because we both had blogs. I started blogging in 2008 and it was so such a more efficient way to put my work out than writing zines. And I was really into it because you don't have to pay for copies and you know anyone can read it. And I'd been looking for other like cool bloggers. And I found this person, Tara, who I thought was so cool because she was from Alaska like me, but she grew up in rural Alaska. I grew up in Anchorage, which is a city. And she grew up on the subsistence trap line, like eating beaver, living in a cabin made of spruce poles. And, uh, you know, she had a dog team and she would go out with her dad and like set traps and snares. And anyway, that's how she grew up. And she, uh, I found her blog, which was called Hobo Stripper. And she was at the time traveling around the lower 48 in a van and uh, working doing sex work and also like snaring rabbits and making herbal medicine, making tinctures in her van and writing this blog about all of it. She was an incredible writer. She is an incredible writer. And I thought she was so cool. And she just bought some land in Alaska, bought five acres and she was there and we'd become friends. I like reached out to her and we became friends. We would email each other all the time. And I was like, what if I came to Alaska now? And she was like, yeah, you should come up. I was like, I really need a job. And she's like, come up. We can like get you, find you a job. And so I sort of was looking on Craigslist, like, I wonder if anyone's driving to Alaska. And I found this listing and I called the guy. And if, you know, if someone's driving a vehicle that's not fuel efficient 
and you split gas, it can be really expensive. So I, I asked him about that because if it was a lot of money, then I would just fly because it would be cheaper. And he was like, I don't want any, I don't want any money. I just want riders. And at first I was like, oh, is that kind of weird? But he was taking two other people also. So I was like, oh, I just, I didn't get any weird, sketchy vibes from him. And I think, I don't know. I, so I've like hitchhiked across the country a few times. I've, I'd hit, at that point I'd hitchhiked to Alaska two other times before. And, you know, I would always try not to hitchhike alone, but it would end up happening for sure. And I, for some reason, I was always very good at sussing out people's vibes, maybe because like as default, I just didn't feel safe. So then I was really unlikely to get myself in a, a situation where someone was like giving off red flags. Cause I would like, I was already hypersensitive, but I was pretty good at like, um, making those sorts of choices about people for some reason. But I was like, I don't think this guy is sketchy. And so he picked the three of us up and the other, the, it was this couple, Meadow and Barry, and I'm still friends with Meadow. And they were these like young sort of hippies who were just, you know, she was from rural Alaska and they'd been like in San Francisco and they were going back to Alaska and they were like very like free. They were both just very free, like had very few belongings and just very chill and just like, traveling around, like playing music and um, being free. And our driver was, he was Israeli American and there was definitely like a cultural like communication barrier where he, he just kind of wouldn't listen. I think cause you know, Meadow and I were women too. He just wouldn't listen to anything we said really, but he was very kind and very generous, but he would not listen to our suggestions. And uh, he would just kind of shout at us a lot uh, not in a mean way, but just, that's the way he talked. It was just like shouting and his business, his license plate said showbiz and he was pulling a trailer and he was like, I work in showbiz. I'm rich. <laughs> I'm driving to Alaska to be Sarah Palin's advisor because she needs me. And I was like, is, is Sarah, do you know Sarah Palin? He was like, no. And later on I was like, oh yeah, this guy was like coked out of his mind maybe. But so to cross into Canada, we had to have a story that sounded very chill or they would run our records. And for me, they would find my misdemeanors and maybe he had like a DRI. Anyway, we didn't want them to run our records. So we created the story that we were all in a band together and we'd known each other for <laughs> 10 years <laughs> we, and that we were traveling with our band, which was really funny. And they led us into Canada and um, he was a terrible driver. As soon as we got into Canada, it was winter. Like Portland, it had been cold and rainy and in British Columbia, it was snowy. And uh, I sort of looked at Meadow and I was like, where were you planning to sleep at night? And she was like, I'd been planning to sleep outside. What about you? And I was like, yeah, I was planning that too, but obviously it's really cold. So one thing that our driver did that was extremely generous is he called ahead and upgraded all of his hotel rooms. So we all fit. And it was when he did all these things that were extremely kind and generous that made us feel like we couldn't really challenge him. Like he didn't ask for any gas money. He let us share his hotel rooms, but his driving. So this, the road, the highway was very icy. The whole way he went between 60 and 80. And while he was driving, he would take pictures of the road with his camera and he would be looking at the camera screen. So he would just swerve back and forth because he wasn't looking at the road. And the whole drive, it was like, click, click, like all these pictures. And he would swerve into the oncoming lane and then back into our lane and then into the oncoming lane and back into our lane. And we were like, what the fuck? And so we were like, can you slow down? You know, and after, you know, once we were a little bit north, it was like just ice. And he was driving the SUV, pulling a trailer. And we were like, can you slow down? Can you stop taking pictures? And he would just ignore us. And so Meadow and I, Barry was just like asleep kind of the whole time, but Meadow and I would take turns sitting in the front trying to like convince him 
to drive differently. And at one point we were like yelling at him. We were like, you need to slow down. Like, this is really dangerous. And he would just ignore us. And we were like, well, can we help you drive? And he's like, no, I want to be able to say I drove the whole way. And if you drive, I can't say that. And we were like, okay. And on day three, we were in the Yukon territory. It was like 15 below zero. We were like, a couple hours from the last town, just driving through the boreal forest on this empty highway, you know, everything covered in snow. And he was taking pictures and he like lost control of the SUV. And we spun across the highway and then flipped on the other side. And the, the trailer like stuck in the snow and stopped us. And then the SUV like righted itself, but like all the windows were smashed in and it was totaled. And amazingly, we were all okay. Like I was eating a can of beans of black beans and they'd like flown out of my house, out of my hand and like purple juice has like, had like covered the inside of the car and like was all over my face. And Meadow and Barry had been laying down in the back seat and they were okay. Like Barry had a bloody nose, but he was like, I'm fine. And the driver was okay too, but we were like, oh my God. And so the driver got out and he was like, he saw that the trailer was busted open and all his furniture was in the snow. And the first thing he said, he was like, my stuff my life is ruined. And we were like, what? We were like, you almost killed us. And so he took the keys and there was a snow plow passing, going back towards the last town, which was like an hour away. And he flagged it down and got on it. And we were like, what are you doing? And he was like, put my stuff in the trailer. I'm going back to get another vehicle. I'll just total this car. And then he left and with the keys and I hadn't been planning to hitchhike. So I, I had stuff that wasn't really easy to carry. Like I had like a suitcase and a backpack. And, um, the only gloves I had were these little wool, like mittens, kind of like fingerless gloves with like a little mitten part that you can put over the fingers. And it was 15 below zero. And we were all like in shock. So we all put our stuff on our clothes on. And we were like, what do we do? And I was like, I'm going to hitchhike. Like I'm not going to ride with Barry anymore. Or sorry with our driver, the other guy's name was Barry. I was like, I'm not going to ride with our driver anymore. And Meadow and Barry were like, oh, okay, we'll come with you. So we all started <laughs> hitchhiking and fine. There was no one on the road. And finally the sedan pulled up and stopped for us. Our driver came back and he looked at us and he like really saw us as if for the first time. And he was like, you're leaving me. And we were like, yeah, we're leaving you. <laughs> like you almost killed us. And he was like, you're leaving. And he was like crestfallen. And we were like, yeah, dude, sorry. <laughs> but so this sedan, it was this young man who was driving to the North Slope to work in the oil fields. And he was wearing this like Hawaiian shirt and he like smelled so bad. And he was like, I haven't slept since Seattle. And his car was full all the way to the ceiling. So we had to like, like I had to like lift all the stuff out of the backseat, sit down and then put it all back on my lap. So all I could see was to the left out the window. And then the front seat, Barry sat with Meadow on his lap and then their stuff on her lap. So they were like crammed in the front seat. And then this guy pulled out and he went 90 miles an hour. And he looked at me, he looked at us in the rear view mirror and he would like tap the brakes so the car would fishtail. And he was like, you like that? You scared? You scared? And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But, but Meadow was like, oh my God. She was like, so like we all acted very calm. She was like, so where are you from? And like, sort of talked him down. And then by the time we got to Whitehorse, we'd convinced him to stop and get and split a hotel room with us for the night and sleep. So it was like St. Patrick's Day or something. I don't know. There was something going on, but we got a hotel room and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm fucking, I feel like insane with like 
<laughs> just like a, adrenaline. And they all went out and went to the bar together <laughs> and had a great time. <laughs> and I like laid down. I, the, the spot I was sleeping, it was like the crack between the bed and the wall. I like laid down in my sleeping bag, my heart just like racing. And I was like, I can't fucking hang with these people. And uh, the next day, um, I was like, all right, you'll ride with this guy. I was like, I'm going to stay in White Horse for a few days and just chill and then hitchhike on my own. I was like, I can't ride with this person. So they left. And then uh, I hung out for a day at the hostel and then hitchhiked the rest of the way and had actually a much better time. Like I got picked up by this First Nations family because it was too cold to sleep outside. So <laughs> I had to, I hadn't been planning to hitchhike, but people kind of had to like take me home, which is really sketchy when you're hitchhiking. You should, you're never supposed to do that. And normally I wouldn't. But I just got picked up by really nice people. Like I got picked up by this First Nations family who took me home and like fed me really good food and I slept on their couch. And then they dropped me off at a spot to hitchhike that was really bad and I got like frostbite on my thumb. But then I like hitchhiked back the other way to a gas station and got a ride with a couple who actually like bought me a motel room that night. And eventually I made it to Fairbanks and to Tara. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So... This book is 300 pages of really good story. <laughs> so many good stories. Oh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to mention before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think that's good. Thanks for letting me tell these stories. <laughs> no, it's great. I could listen to you tell stories forever. I feel like it's a great primer for folks of what to expect in <laughs> this book. Um, okay, so if you could leave everyone with one call to action based on our conversation, what would that be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? What would you love for folks to do or think about? Oh, that's a good question. I guess this is something we didn't really talk about, but like the theme of my book one of the themes in my book is definitely forgiveness and how, especially when you've experienced abuse, how hard it is to forgive the people who've hurt you. And for years, my inability to sort of forgive my mom caused me like a lot of suffering. And when I finally came around, I mean, obviously it took a long time and we should never, you know, forgive people before we're ready or, you know, whatever. Because not forgiving someone can be very energizing and can help us escape situations and can help us, you know, make different choices and get safe or whatever we need to do. But when I finally forgave her, it also allowed me to forgive myself because we all have shadows. Like we all like fuck up, like all of us. And when I reject other people's shadows, I also reject my own shadow. And so when I can't forgive other people, I also can't forgive myself, you know, which also causes like so much suffering and so much difficulty. And when I finally saw how she was doing her best and that she was the way she was because of all the trauma she'd experienced and I was able to forgive her, I was also able to like accept myself. And it brought me all of this peace that I hadn't known before. And I think that's one of the biggest themes of the book, even though I don't, I don't know how well it comes across. Yeah. I don't know. But I think one question that I wish I'd asked myself a long time ago was like, what's getting in the way of me forgiving myself? Because Mm. there's so many ways that there's so many things about ourselves that are hard to forgive. Like at the very least, like the way we're all complicit in these systems that are terrible, you know, like this pyramid scheme that we live in, it's really demoralizing and terrible and causes so much suffering and we're all complicit in it. You know, we live our day to day lives in it. And like, 
there's so many things that are, it's really hard to forgive ourselves and that causes, it interrupts like our ability to heal. It interrupts our ability to like have compassion or forgive others because we like, yeah, it's like they're, they're intricately tied. So like, yeah, what stands in the way of like forgiving yourself for whatever it is? I guess that's my, that's that's, my that's a beautiful question and definitely something that I don't know that I have a good answer for and (laughs) will be in my journal. So thank you for the prompt. What's the best place for people to find you and say, hi, I will make sure that I put links to the book and everything in the show notes, but do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, I think I'm most active on Instagram, which is just Carrot Quinn. So that's always a good place. Yes, I will put that in the show notes too. Carrot, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. It was great. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this labor of love. Our music and sound editing is by Adam Day, who it has been a total dream and a pleasure to collaborate with for the past six years. And thank you especially to the people on our Patreon community who have made all 200 plus episodes of Real Talk Radio possible. You can find that community of ours at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. It's a wonderful group of folks who crave honesty, intimacy, and possibility, and for whom I love creating essays, live gatherings, exclusive audio content, and more each and every month. If you'd like to join us, I will see you over there. Patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette.